Hello, this is Barbara DeGran. I'm an abolitionist vegan from Texas in the USA. You can find me at veganacious.com and you're listening to Coexisting with Non-Human Animals. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Vegetarian. Vegan. Yeah, well. Let's get it right. You used the word animals, but I suppose what you should have said is non-human animals. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Coexisting with Non-Human Animals. I've been lucky enough to be included on two animal rights shows recently. Wild Time, an Irish radio show, and also on the first episode of My Face is on Fire, the podcast. Right now. Yes, I'm recording okay. now. Okay. Hello there and welcome to Wild Time. With myself, Thomas Yanak, the Animal Rights Slash World Conservation Show. Today I'm joined on Skype by John Wyatt and he has a blog called Coexisting with Non-Humans, Non-Human Animals. And um, in theory that all sounds very, very easy. And the question always is, why can we not coexist with non-human animals peacefully? So, John, thanks for doing the interview. Why do you have this blog? Uh, Hi, Thomas. Um, I have my podcast and my blog just because I find it fun to talk about helping animals and meeting other people that are vegan and interested in animal rights. Jordan Wyatt, host of Coexisting with Non-Human Animals, another abolitionist podcast to which you should really be listening offered up the following veganism is my way of extending a hand of friendship to all other animals i grew up being nice to animals as i was told that was kind that is to say after rain i'd walk through the streets picking stranded worms out of puddles with a rubber spatula but i still ate pigs and sheep and chickens and cows i've linked to the four episodes in my blog notes for this episode I think it's worth briefly mentioning the gossip that heavyweight boxer Mike Tyson is now said to be vegan. Celebrities who decide to try a vegan diet are always troublesome, because if they decide to stop being vegan, it can make veganism appear as just a trendy fad. I listen to a few general interest podcasts that I would expect to cover Mike Tyson's veganism, but I guess that would damage the vegan stereotype. It hasn't been mentioned. Non-vegans have to promote the stereotypical tiny, weak vegan who whines all the time. Heavyweight boxers are not allowed to be considered vegan. I've noticed that many people who are vegetarian never have their dietary choices mentioned. Famous people such as Albert Einstein, Nikola Tesla, the man who practically invented everything to do with electricity and radio, or childhood heroes such as Mr. Rogers. I personally find Fred Rogers quite interesting. Here's a quote from the Fred Rogers Center. Bedrock honesty ran throughout the man's life. He treated everyone with the same respect and sensitivity that he knew had helped him as a child. And his strong moral code informed every aspect of his life, from how he lived to the community he chose for his family and work, even to what he ate. Fred was a vegetarian who told people, I don't want to eat anything that has a mother. Often it is not mentioned if celebrities past were vegetarian or vegan. I'm sure Mr. Rogers wore wool and leather, and I believe he had fish on the show. I think many well-known vegetarians would be vegan if they were properly informed. Sadly, 
Vegetarians and vegans are commonly portrayed as nutjobs who scream, Meat is murder! and throw red paint at people wearing fur, while avoiding those wearing leather. By appearing sensible, and even tempered, I hope stereotypes of those radical crazy vegans will be quashed. I often worry if people can understand what I'm saying. <laughs> it's part of the reason I post each episode's script on my blog. Problems understanding the New Zealand accent arose with Justin Bieber recently. He appeared on C4, which is New Zealand's rip-off of MTV. I hope you understand who I'm meaning, Justin Bieber, that annoying little guy who's stolen the hearts of every preteen girl worldwide. The host was apparently talking another language to poor Bieber. Uh, okay, Justin, um, Bieber, sorry, is German for basketball, true or false? Is what? Is German for basketball, true or false? German? German. Sorry, that's the Kiwi accent going on there. German, you know, German. I don't know what that means. Let me look here, German. German. Is German for... I don't know what that means. Okay, we don't say that in America. We'll move, <laughs> we'll move on. I okay. like basketball, if that's what you're asking me. Yeah, why not? He likes basketball. Yeah. Um, I've got... I like that. Uh, Jew man for basketball? We don't say that in America. Apparently the poor kid thought the host was saying, Jew man. Now I'm not sure, not sure if anyone listening can understand what I'm trying to say. Jew man. A man. A male. Who is Jewish. A Jew man. When the host had really said German, as in Germany, um, not Jew many or many Jews, but the country known for BMW and Mercedes-Benz luxury cars. Now I'm actually worried that nobody can understand me. I'd love to get any emails from any English understanding listeners who have no idea what I'm yammering on about in my New Zealand accent. Not all New Zealanders talk as crazy as I do. I have a Southland accent. I do some wacky rolling ah thing. It's from a Scottish influence in the region, and so I mutilate words like murder, Southlanders, murder, the English language. I'm going to try and avoid anything with an R in the future. I can't hear myself doing it. I don't think I'd ever recognise any other Southlander through the R thing. But it is a very noticeable annoyance to other New Zealanders. I have gotten an email from a friend before, who shall remain nameless, who misheard my pronunciation of no agenda. I think it's so interesting and entertaining the way you splice in sound bites from videos or other shows, especially the Noah Jingo. I think she heard my no agenda is Noah Jingo. This could have been a simple slip of memory. I often jumble up website or podcast names, or it could have been the way I talk. I think blaming the misunderstanding of my accent is funnier. I promise this podcast is actually about animal rights, but I have one last clip to play. I was listening to Ender's Game, a great classic, and the most legendary character is mentioned as being a New Zealander, which I think is pretty cool. I suppose the American author wanted a cool-sounding nationality that nobody had ever heard of. Perhaps he spun a globe and randomly picked New Zealand. The clip begins by talking about the superiority of Jew men, Jewish men, not German men, and then mentions Mazer Rackham. There were many who liked to remember that during the second invasion, even though an American Jew as president was hegemon of the alliance, an Israeli Jew was strategos in overall command of IF defense, and a Russian Jew was polemarch of the fleet, it was Mazer Rackham, a little-known, twice-court-martialed, half-Maori New Zealander, whose strike force broke up and finally destroyed the bugger fleet in the action around Saturn. A half Maori New Zealander? It would actually be a half Maori New Zealander.
Mari seemed to have a natural ability in space warfare. In the Star Wars prequels, all the clone army are made of Temuera Morrison clones. I promise I'll bring up the topic of pronunciation later. I'd like to mention a message board discussion I came across in the farming section on Trade Me about killing baby calves, unwanted for the unlawful crime of being born male. I often read and post on the Trade Me message board, as C4 is the New Zealand MTV ripoff, Trade Me is essentially the New Zealand clone of eBay. eBay is actually barely used in New Zealand, one of the few countries in the world to not support eBay. We also tend to avoid Amazon, and don't ask us about Best Buy, Circuit City, Walmart or Whole Foods. We don't have a clue what you mean. But this isn't a podcast about what New Zealand lacks that America has in abundance, such as iPads. I should get back on topic. The threat about killing calves began. Right, I don't want any animal lovers to comment in here, please. Open an honest dairy farmers only, please. We are looking at shooting all our unwanted calves this year instead of mucking around with a bobby lorry, etc, etc. First, I want to make sure it's actually legal to do this. And secondly, I want to know if anyone does this. Thanks. Well, at least one animal lover happened to be reading. I also noticed the term open is in not closed-minded. I've often been accused of being closed or narrow-minded because I seem so against the idea of killing animals. I think being vegan is actually being rather open-minded to go against the norms of society for what you believe is just. Here's some of the other comments. As far as I'm aware, you are legally allowed to do it, or as long as they are being disposed of in a humane way, is this correct? As far as I'm concerned, shooting them is more humane than sending them on the bobby lorry. We don't have the space for them, nor is the calf rearer I do want to muck around, no idea what this means, want to muck around with wasting good colostrum on bobby calves, or my time on them that should be spent on the replacements. I feel I must point out the word humane, H-U-M-A-N-E, is repeatedly spelt wrong, such as H-U-M-A-I-N, which is rather fun to read. I truly think animal welfare promotion has gotten us to a place where the word humane means killing the animals, just make it quick. I don't know what the opposite would be, killing an animal slowly, I suppose. That would slow the killing speed though, which would be bad for the slaughterhouse. Another comment. But you have to keep your head down a bit, as a lot of town-reared folk still think food has no relation to living creatures. And some people save snails, etc. I try and save all animals. I like saving worms from puddles, because after rain, worms become stranded in puddles since the water cannot drain through concrete. It's a good feeling to flip a struggling worm from its watery grave and onto someone's lawn. You do look a bit crazy though, bending over in public and groping about in the gutters to throw something at people's lawns. Another comment. And if you're using a 22, make sure you have muzzle contact to put the shot in exactly the right place. Tell nobody. The last thing Derry needs right now is another media show. Cheers and good luck. Would you be happy with Campbell Live turning up to film it? Could you justify to the public what you are doing, and not just on the terms of dollars and cents? Practices like this do damage all dairy farms' reputation. At the end of the day, this is as bad or worse than inductions. All we need now is someone to do their podcast and Hans Creek to come along. Remember, the consumer has the final say. Hey, I got a mention. Someone do their podcast. That's me. I'm well known in the farming section as being a thorn on their side. 
I don't post anywhere online to be a troll. Mostly I ask the farmers for their comments on current animal rights or animal welfare stories in the news. I would actually like to have one or two of them on my show. I suggest they could meet me on Skype. But so far, all their tough talk has been from safely behind their keyboards. I highly doubt that I could be convinced that it is moral to kill or otherwise use animals for our pleasure, but it would be good to have a healthy debate on my show instead of my lecturing about what I think is right. Other comments included some condemning the murder of day-old babies, instead saying that they should feed them for four or five days, and then give them a ticket on the so-called bobby truck. This bobby truck goes about farms, collecting week-old calves to be taken to slaughter. I believe there's actually a cost to this of around $5 an animal to the farmer. The various parts of the animal are separated and sold. Other farmers mentioned this had the benefit of helping other industries out, such as the sale of slink skins, the leather and fur from stillborn animals or the calves killed within days. Incidentally, this apparently makes the softest leather around. It's desired for fashion industries. Farmers for killing it a day old mention there's not much of a difference in keeping someone alive for one day to be killed or keeping him alive for a few days to be killed. The result is almost exactly the same. I could keep reading the comments for an hour. So, the general theme was it is inevitable that dairy farmers have to kill male calves within days of birth. Oh, as long as it was done, quote, humanely. Who knows what that actually means? I suppose getting it over and done with quickly. Even the ways of killing animals were ambiguous. Some mentioned shooting the animals. I presume the gun is put to the animal's head and they are shot. Others mentioned using a captive bolt pistol, like at a slaughterhouse. The captive bolt would stun the animal, and then I suppose his throat is cut. These were the two main, presumably humane, ways of killing these baby male animals. Others mentioned taking to them with a hammer, or joked about selling them online for hunters to, for target practice. Many of the farmers mentioned being disgusted by the thought of, quote, hammer jockeys, and that was, I guess, an inhumane way to kill the animals. It was brought up that the whole topic shouldn't be spoken of in public, as it was bad PR for the dairy industry, so who knows how many of the babies are killed, quote, humanely or otherwise. I don't think the animals care how we kill them, if we stun them first and cut their throat, if we shoot them in the head, or if we bludgeon them to death. They are all horrific to me, absolutely disgusting. The issue is not treatment, but use itself. I won't spend my time asking farmers to follow Temple Grandin designed finishing moves on animals. I actually want to help animals, so I promote veganism. This is really no different than the grinding of day-old male chicks. Both are just simple facts of life using animals as property, and cannot be avoided. It is simply not realistic to expect farmers could keep all male chickens that hatch. The roosters would be a giant so-called loss to the farmers, while not producing eggs to quote, earn their keep, like the hens. Male calves, bulls, would be a giant cost to the farmers. Think of the amount of land used on the average dairy farm. If every male calf was allowed to live, twice as much land would be required. Both male chicks and male calves are seen as worthless, so they are killed as soon as possible. Veganism answers this problem by avoiding any animal product, even those naturally plopped or oozed out under unnatural conditions, so no animals are directly harmed. Cows are in our mainstream media for other reasons. My local newspaper, the Southland Times, mentioned crackdown on straying stock. 
from the article. Police and the Southland District Council will take a hard line against farmers whose stock are found wandering on roads after a reported 13 crashes this year. Three drivers were injured in the crashes, seven of which involved cattle. Horse, sheep and deer were also involved. The latest serious incident, officers were called on Saturday to deal with a stroppy and aggressive bull wandering an Apara Flat Road near Wallacetown that had tried to attack a cyclist. Stock control officers were called, and they recognised the bull as one they had been called out to twice four days earlier. The owner could not be found, so the bull was shot because of public safety fears. Most, if not quite all, cattle in New Zealand are out on pasture, large green fields surrounded by fences. They are not living in battery cages or gestation crates. They live outside on green grass. They can move about freely. They have plenty of food and also shelter if they want it. Within reason, I suppose there's no particular reason for cattle to escape, although perhaps the adage, the grass is always greener on the other side, comes into play. But it's inevitable. There will always be animals that manage to escape from their owner's section. And when this happens, the last sentence of the article mentions animals being, quote, impounded. Yeah, right, as if the police are going to wrestle a giant animal into the backseat of a police car. Or, as if they would have some way to impound the animal like a car, with some sort of clamp. No, the obvious thing that's going to happen with free-running animals on public roads is that they'll be shot, as I read before. Quote, the owner could not be found, so the bull was shot because of public safety fears. These animals are just property, and they will be killed or found away from their farms. Of course, all animals used for farming end up dead in the end. They are kept alive until they are killed. No matter how green the grass, or how much room is given, I don't believe there is a humane way to keep animals as our property, and to kill them for our pleasure. Here's a story about animals in traffic, with a potentially happier ending. Naturally fermenting fruit is thought to be responsible for a curious rise in kereru, or wood pigeons, crashing into cars around Invercargill this autumn. A local bird sanctuary is treating more and more kereru injured in traffic collisions. Annabelle Jackman has more. A little battered and bruised, but after a run-in with a car, this kereru is one lucky wood pigeon. It was picked up on one of the roads and uh, it had a lot of broken bone and that in there. May and Russell Evans run a bird sanctuary and say they're alarmed at the number of kiridu colliding with cars. We've had 24 in the last year, but of that probably about um, just under a third would have been from road injuries. Kiridu expert Tabitha Beecroft says it's the autumn fruit the birds gorge on that can prove their downfall. And they're heavy with the fruit and so when they take off to fly, they're flying low. She suspects the naturally fermenting fruit may be the reason for their wobbly takeoffs. Probably makes them feel good because they kind of get a little bit drunk or something, that's what it looks like. Now the Evanses want warning signs put up around Otatara, alerting motorists to the low-flying birds. Even if we can save the life of three or four birds or even less, it's, yeah, it'll be magic. Their hard works for good reason. It's estimated that the Kiridu population decreases by up to 20% per decade. For that reason, they're still a protected species under the Wildlife Act, meaning harsh penalties for anyone who kills a Kiridu.
Just last week, five Norwegian hunters were charged under the very same act for shooting a kiruru. But for this couple, it's not prosecution, but education that'll keep these birds safe. Annabelle Jackman, 3 News. I've mentioned the tourists who visited New Zealand to go hunting, and who unknowingly killed an endangered New Zealand wood pigeon, or kiruru. See, this is the long-awaited part about pronunciation. I can never say the correct Māori term for the New Zealand wood pigeon, kiruru. You may remember me mocking people for not saying Māori correctly. Well, here I go unable to name a well-known New Zealand bird. Most New Zealand Europeans, or white people, would call the birds wood pigeons. Although like many things in New Zealand today, the original Māori language's name is starting to be used instead. I think that's much more respectful, since the rivers, mountains and animals had names before the European settlers showed up one day to take over the country. It's just... For me, I can never say kiruru correctly. The usual white guy mistake would be to break the name down into English-sounding sections. Kiri and then ru, like kangaroo, kiriru. I think it's more correct to say kiraru, although for the life of me I always stumble through it. Sadly, my education in Māori is not much beyond... Perhaps if I say it fast enough, my mistakes won't be noticed. Kiruru. Or, I could just use the second name, wood pigeon. Wood pigeons are quite large birds. They are mostly green and white, and apparently rather rare in the North Island. They were historically hunted for our food. I've seen plenty where I live, at the bottom of the South Island, although they are still obviously unusual. I can often find them in the centre of Invercargill, right in the middle of the city at the Otapuni Gardens. I'll link to the Wikipedia page for the Otapuni. I took the photos and created the article itself. Wood pigeons are quite unnerving birds. They are so large. Most New Zealand birds that fly are small, blackbird sized at most, with only a few seagulls and pigeons in larger cities, filling out into a Rubenesque stature. Perhaps that's a bit mean. Those birds are naturally big boned. Wood pigeons live almost solely on fruiting trees and they are important to distribute the larger seeds that other birds can't swallow. When I've seen wood pigeons, they are always silent, and they blend in very well with their mostly green feathers. I'm going to be honest though, wood pigeons have always creeped me out, and it's not just because I can't say kiruru. The news story mentioned wood pigeons as being a danger to drivers in Otatara, well, and obviously the vehicles are a danger to the birds themselves. Otatara is a couple minutes from my house, it's essentially a rural setting, by the Invercargill airport, where there are practically no street lights or sewage pipes. Everything is handled by septic tanks. And the houses themselves are tucked away in the bush. So, you are close to Invercargill city and you also have native trees and bushwalks with native birds. My best friend growing up lived in Otatara, and one afternoon, as his mother was driving me home, a wood pigeon startled us. Joanne had a little orange-red Ford, in New Zealand, we'd say it was Jaffa-coloured, J-A-F-F-A, after the orange chocolate lollies. It didn't have seatbelts in the back seat, just a vinyl bench so you could slide about on the corners. Regulations thankfully put a stop to that in time. I don't remember if her car had rear seatbelts when the Kiruru attacked. We were in a small orange car, driving down the road, up and down gentle hills, when this mammoth green and white demon flew at the windscreen. 
It seemed to blot out the sky. It was no doubt as scared as we were. I think we all screamed as it breasted the windscreen and carried on its way. I don't remember if it actually touched the car or not. I was very young, and as you should know by now, my imagination is vivid. It's hard to forget this giant bird that could have caused a serious accident though. And so, since these collisions are continuing on to this day, it's probably a very good thing to have warning signs about potentially drunk wood pigeons lazily zipping across roads at low heights. I'm glad to hear there's a bird sanctuary at Odotara. I never knew, and it doesn't seem to have a website. I'd love to visit sometime. I've linked to the video, and the recovering wood pigeons do look like very gentle animals, as they are lightly held, and they eat peas and corn from a plate. Not only do these large, potentially inebriated animals seem to leap out at cars, they have this creepy flapping noise. It's sort of like a Hollywood sound effect of a large knife being thrown, turning end over end as it flies past the camera in slow motion. Good old YouTube never lets me down. I found a video with the sound. Most of the time, you won't notice a wood pigeon until you hear this horrifying sound. So, you are walking through the bush or through public gardens when you hear a god-awful noise behind you. You turn and see this giant green and white pigeon, surely on steroids, whizzing through the air. Now, my little chicken friends may have amber or even red eyes, but wood pigeons have blood red eyes. Not just blood red like, say, white rabbits, but a deep, satanic blood red. I'm sure wood pigeons are lovely animals. They are quiet, they seem to have a green and white tuxedo on, males and females stay together, and they mainly live on fruit. But between the blood-curdling flapping noise, which belongs with vampire bats in a B-movie, and their blood-red eyes, I've always found them unnerving. If I ever make a movie, it'll feature scary wood pigeons. Perhaps I'm just jealous of Australia for getting all the deadly animals, all the poison and fangs and venom and jaws. New Zealand is such a gentle country. Most of our native birds forgot how to fly. There were no predators for them. Meanwhile, it seems most Australian plants, plants for Pete's sake, are Venus flytraps, or they have spikes, or they are poisonous. It really is hell to live in a peaceful country like New Zealand. Maybe I just want to have one scary-sounding New Zealand native bird. Oh, and I must mention that I'm afraid to pronounce the true name of wood pigeons, Kiriru. Just as traffic can damage animals, so can animal waste damage water supplies. Many New Zealand rivers nationwide have now become polluted from runoff from the dairy industry. I think most New Zealanders have heard the slogan, Dirty Dairying. It's kind of like factory farming. That some dairy farmers are out there pumping goodness knows what into creeks, rivers and streams. Many rivers are now unfit for swimming. Again, many people in New Zealand might be harsh about Chinese factories, mentioning acrid smoke billowing out from massive chimneys, polluting cities, but we should realise that animal waste from dairy farms has an effect on the New Zealand landscape as well. Let's turn now to Auckland's water supply. Waikato is arguably the most productive dairy area in the world. Rich countryside, highly efficient farmers, the world's biggest dairy company processing much of the milk. But running through this countryside is the Waikato River, and since 2002 Auckland has sourced about 10% of its water from that river. Do some of Waikato's 1.2 million cows end up pooing in that river? Yes, they do, Tristram Clayton reports. This is a story about a river. 
a river that flows clear and crisp from the northern tip of Lake Taupo. And ends here at Port Waikato on the Tasman Sea. So what happens along the way? How does the Waikato River's 425-kilometre journey affect its health? I'm just a few hundred metres from the source of the Waikato here in Taupo. The water here looks crystal clear, but to make sure, I'm going to take some samples and then compare them with more samples from further down the river. We test five spots at 100 kilometre intervals along the river. Taupo, Mangakino, Tamahere, Topuri, and finally Tuako. We're now just 20 kilometres from where the Waikato enters the Tasman Sea. It's also the spot where around 50 million litres of water a day is taken from the river, treated, and then pumped into the Auckland water supply. In our sites are two main forms of pollution, nitrogen and E. coli. Nitrogen causes noxious plants to grow. This chokes waterways and causes all other life to die. E. coli comes from human or animal faeces. Ingesting it will make you sick. Here at the source, what's your view of the purity of the water? Clean enough to drink. I have no problem dipping my cup in there and drinking it straight out. Um, and it makes the best coffee in Taupo. So is he right. Three days later, the results are in. Our first two test sites give satisfactory readings. E. coli is low, although still unsafe to drink, and nitrogen is about half the acceptable limit. But soon after Cambridge, the river changes. Total nitrogen jumps alarmingly, and E. coli levels skyrocket. At Topuri, downstream from Naruwahia, the bacteria is more than 55% over the safe limit for swimming. Swallowing even small amounts of this water can be dangerous. In the last 10 years, we've had two occasions where algal growth fueled by nitrogen phosphorus in the river has led to health warnings and it's caused problems for the uh, people who take drinking water from the river. Bill Vant says the river is much cleaner than it was in the 1960s. In those days, raw sewage was pumped straight into the river. But the contaminants we detected are still a concern. I don't think you'd be wise to swim or drink it. Um, you'd want to be pretty careful uh, because of the level of E. coli, faecal bacteria that ends up in the river, particularly after, it, after it's been raining. So where do all those nasties come from? And why does water quality suddenly deteriorate around Hamilton? If you're thinking sewerage and industry, you're only partly right. The Hamilton Sewerage Treatment Plant is the river's single biggest point source polluter. That's where pollution comes from a pipe. The Kinleith Pulp and Paper Mill, Fonterra's Tarapa Factory and the AFCO Meatworks in Horatu are the next biggest. So by the time the river reaches Naruawahia, just downstream, those four big polluters have already pumped almost half a million cubic metres of wastewater into the river every day. But as it turns out, they're only a small part of the problem. And this is why. Agriculture, in particular dairy farming, now accounts for around three quarters of all the contaminants found in the river. Yes, that's right, three quarters. It's 
leaching into the river and, and it's getting worse and the reason it's getting worse is because we've had this massive expansion and intensification of dairy uh, through the Waikato. So it's like uh, for every, every herd of a thousand cows you see it's like 14,000 people doing their business in the field and all of that ends up one way or another getting into the river. There are strict rules surrounding how effluent collected in dairy sheds should be disposed of. But with 1.2 million cows scattered over 4,000 Waikato dairy farms, enforcement isn't easy. Out of the uh, 700 farms we monitored last year, uh, there was around 20% that were significantly non-compliant. And how many prosecutions? Uh, last year around five prosecutions. Are you happy with that level? Well, it's about um, the amount of resources we've got to be able to do the job and about sending the message that we need to send. Um, do you think you're sending the message? Uh, yes, I absolutely do. With I only mean, five out of 120 prosecutions? You look at the profile that uh, the dairy affluent prosecutions that we're doing has got. Um, they're high profile and certainly we believe that farmers out there on the ground are starting to understand the significant risks associated with being non-compliant. Environment Waikato found 120 farms that were significantly non-compliant when it came to effluent. That's 120 farms too many as far as Fonterra is concerned and we're taking every possible step to halve that number inside of 18 months and have it trending to zero. Tim Dean says he'd be happy to see more monitoring of dairy farms and points out that if farmers repeatedly break the rules, Fonterra will and has refused to take their milk. But is that enough? Should we be looking to limit herd concentration? Well, uh, New Zealand's got to make that decision. Uh, in our view, those sorts of punitive measures aren't required. Uh, but if New Zealand decides that they want to reduce income, then um, there are big consequences. Um, Seven billion dollars of New Zealand's export earnings comes from the Waikato Basin. And so we've got to balance economic and environmental issues. Economics versus environment, arguably the 21st century's biggest challenge. All New Zealanders are affected by the tainted water, including vegans. I would make a comment to my friends living in the region, drink up guys, but then I've realised that I'm further down the country, and even if I'm safe from Waikato dairy runoff, Southland is also known for its dairy industry. All those animals will always need to go potty, and so there will always be waterways being polluted as long as we engage in dairy farming. I'd like to mention one more thing. The story about genetically modified cows being killed because of serious defects has spread worldwide. Here is coverage from Australia. The debate over genetically modified animals has been reignited in New Zealand after three cows died in a bungled experiment. A mutation caused the calves' ovaries to grow so large they ruptured. The cows are part of New Zealand's studies into potential human fertility treatments. Bridget Glanville reports from Auckland. Six months after a human fertility treatment program started, two calves with no previous symptoms were found dead in a paddock. The third was put down. Ag Research, a federally funded institute, is now testing to find out why the ovaries grew to the size of tennis balls rather than the usual thumbnail size. Ag Research Manager, Dr Jim Sutty. As I pointed out, these calves were an experiment where they were um, induced to, to produce human follicle stimulating hormone, which is of course a protein they wouldn't normally produce, that's the transgenic nature of this research. Uh, and instead of producing the FSH only in their 
uh, mammary glands, which was what was um, supposed to happen, they were producing this hormone throughout their, uh, throughout their bodies. We still don't know exactly, in terms of the autopsy reports, why the animals died. Ag research says all the right procedures were followed. Scientists hope that a human genetic code, which had been injected into the cow, would enable the animal to produce milk, which could be used as a human fertility treatment. Dr Jim Sutty again. It's probably also fair to say that the Ethics Committee um, and the, the vets have got the power to stop any experiment that they see or to have animals put down if they see any signs of distress or anything that is untoward, as it were. And at no time do they ask us to do that. By law, we have to inform the individuals, um, we have to inform the authorities. There is one cow from the trial which is still alive. It has no symptoms of enlarged ovaries. Ag Research has permits to put human genes into goats, sheep and cows for the next 20 years to see if animals can produce human proteins in their milk. The deaths have reignited the debate around genetically modified animals. The Greens Party has called for an investigation into the trials at the facility at Hamilton. John Carapete is from GE Free New Zealand. The deformities are quite horrifying. I think most New Zealanders are quite shocked that this has been going on behind closed doors. Unfortunately, it's not the first time that deformities have been emerged in these experiments. Um, the real problem is where does it go to next? They've just approved, the authorities, the Environmental Risk Management Authority, have just approved 20 more years of experiments with cows, sheep and goats. And I think most New Zealanders um, are thinking, well, if there are alternatives to what they're doing here that cause these kind of gross deformities, then they must be looked at. Unfortunately, that's not going on. Ag research has dropped plans to make genetically modified buffalo, pigs, llamas and alpacas. This is Bridget Glanville in Auckland for AM. It's not something we can cover up forever. I would like to make a comment about my last episode. I was critical of Peter members on an official Peter podcast for pointing out that they enjoyed the taste of animal products. I received a comment that they were only being honest. I do apologise if I came across as harsh. I certainly have no desire to judge other people. I'm just some guy with a second-hand USB microphone. However, I still wouldn't mention that I liked the taste of animal products as I was telling other people about veganism. Thank you for listening to Coexisting with Non-Human Animals. You can find the script for this episode as well as downloads for every episode of Coexisting with Non-Human Animals at coexistingwithnonhumananimals.blogspot.com If you want to contact me, even just to say you listened, send an email to jwontdart at gmail.com or on Twitter, twitter.com slash j-a-y-w-o-n-t-d-a-r-t I'd appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Away from the ocean of animals as things and toward the moral personhood of animals. The choice is ours. If you're not vegan, go vegan. It's easy, it's better for you, it's certainly better for the planet, and most importantly, it's the morally right thing to do.